Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. We just want to say thank you to all the fans who have tuned in, subscribed, and shared this podcast. We have been pleasantly surprised about the amount of downloads in just one week. Y'all are some serious true crime truth seekers. For sure. So I'm especially loving all the reviews. I don't know if you've had a chance to read them all, Chris. I love going through them, reading what people say. Some of them are really funny. And this one is by far my favorite this week. So this one person says, Detective Anderson will care for you as a human being, but let you know real quick to stop with the game. Fatima is fire and ice. I'm team Christima all day. That is pretty awesome. Christima. All our seasons. No yeah, one has ever called no us that. No one has ever called us Christima. Yeah. So I think that's our new name. I know who wrote that. If that was you, message us, please email us at crimeandcookiejuice at right. gmail.com. We'd love to know because you just got something started there. But yeah, make sure you subscribe, share, and review. And whoever gives us funny reviews, we'll read them on here. I think that's pretty cool. We should get us some shirts <laughs> made saying Chris Tima. <laughs> People are asking for merch. One of my friends was like, I want you on a coffee cup. I want you on my coffee in the morning. But it's <laughs> bourbon show. But hey. yeah, so we're working on it. We've got some cool little logos coming. Maybe we can get some merch before the holidays. Look, if, if coffee is your cookie juice, let's there do you go. some coffee. I've heard a few people drink. say that. Yeah, I'm enjoying yeah, their yeah. coffee listening. It's cool. Fatima and I are excited about tonight's topic because we love learning and staying up to date with DNA technology. But of course, first things first, let's pour some bourbon before we pour over this evidence. So Fatima, what is your cookie juice for this evening? I'm drinking Evan Williams Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. So I'm sorry I'm laughing because last week I had Blanton's, which is like the creme de la creme. Here's the deal. Not going to hate on this, first of all. It's been a week. And brother, you know about my week. For all those listening, I have encountered hand, foot, and mouth with my child. My toddler came home with that from preschool, and that has been lovely. We have been trapped in the house all week, and he cries every single second because he's got blisters in his mouth. And my husband decides at the same time to come down with some mysterious stomach virus that has lasted, no joke, like five days. Chris, I'm not kidding you. He's probably upstairs throwing up right now. Really? He just cannot stop throwing up. So I'm down here and I said, just give me the straight Evan Williams. I know the week you've had. We've been oh. on the phone all week. You deserve what you're drinking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something ridiculous. I'm not saying I prefer this over Blanton's or Blanton's over this or... This one is sweeter. It's cinnamony. It's syrupy, honey. I just get sweeter notes here. It's actually going down smooth. Either that yes. or I just really needed a drink. I wish you could see what she's drinking. She's drinking the Evans Williams, but she doesn't have any ice in it. I don't no. know if she's put any water in it or anything like that. But everybody drinks it differently. My friends were laughing at me. They said, you don't put ice or water. When I was with you guys, I never noticed that. I would just pour it straight. Just drink it like this. There are some bourbons that you don't want to mix with ice or water mm -hmm. or anything it just tastes good by itself i was just saying this is really good and smooth okay That's evan good. williams there's a reason you're popular and on all the shelves okay <laughs> enough about my drink what are you drinking <laughs> what fancy schmancy so, drink do you have over there i won't call this a fancy schmancy drink but it has a really cool backstory so this is uncle near partner there is a really really cool story behind the uncle nearest brand it's so cool that I don't even want to say it on air because I'm afraid I'll mess it up. But my goal is, and I have started to seek out the master blender for Uncle Nearest. 
Now, here's a cool portion of the story that I will release to you and to our fans that are listening to this podcast. The master blender for Uncle Nearest is a lady by the name of Victoria Edie Butler. The story is it's way too cool for me to screw it up. I don't want to say it on air, but I am seeking out to see if we can get Miss Butler on the podcast herself and let her explain how the Uncle Nearest brand came about. And I promise you, you guys, you won't want to miss it. But understand this. This is one of the smoothest whiskeys that I've ever tasted. And when you get a, a, a listen to the story behind it, you'll love it even more. So that's all I'm going to say about it. But understand, Detective Anderson is really going to have a good time reviewing Uncle Nearest. It, it goes down smooth. You know, sometimes when you taste a bourbon, it will leave a sting, let it burn as it goes down. Not Uncle Nearest. It's, it's one of the smoothest whiskeys that I've tasted. Uncle Nearest. Uncle Nearest. I that's, love it. That, and, and is and it good? Oh my God, Fatima. It is amazing. Especially yeah, your bottle's you almost it. empty, bro. It's almost empty. But cool. you know what? See, the, the thing about <laughs> Mama needs is, to drink more. <laughs> I always keep it. Oh, you got a backup. I'm going to have to try that one. You got to try it. Put it on my try. list. I've got, got it. a ton to try. I, I'm the amateur over here. You're the experienced one. This this is a podcast about a, a dummy learning bourbon <laughs> and a very experienced bourbon drinker. That's what you get with us, you guys. Well, For everyone. I said this. I said this on my live the other day. And look, we brother and sister, so this doesn't go for you. Maybe, no, it doesn't go for you at all. But look, there is nothing sexier than a woman that knows her way around a bourbon bottle. Really? It's just for, oh my God. It's just, it's Wait, does wifey know her way around a bourbon? Yes, my wife oh. knows her way around a bourbon. She knows her way around a bourbon bottle. She knows the taste, the notes that she mm -hmm. likes, and she knows her limits also. There's nothing sexier and a woman that knows her way around okay. the bourbon bottle. Ladies, y'all listen up because I'm giving you game. I'm giving you so much game on this podcast bourbon. about bourbons. Let's <laughs> get to it because honestly, we have a lot of content tonight. Of course, we packed in a lot because it's such an interesting topic. So tonight we're going to be talking about advances in DNA and how it can help or hurt a case. First, Chris, I have a quick story about a local case that I honestly just have to share with you. I included this one last minute because I think it's just wild and you'll find it interesting. It's a local story here. It's in the San Jose area, which is not far from where I live, maybe about an hour. So a guy named Ravish Kumra was a 66-year-old wealthy businessman who lived in the Silicon Valley. And in 2012, a group of men break into his mansion. They blindfold and gag him and his wife with tape and tie them up as they ransack the house. Ravish ends up suffocating from the duct tape that was put on him. Less than a month later, police arrest a guy named Lucas Anderson, a 26-year-old unhoused alcoholic. His DNA was found under the fingernails of the victim, Ravish. Now, Anderson, who is facing the death penalty, he had no recollection of committing the crime, but admits he blacks out a lot due to alcohol. The criminalists actually found the DNA of three convicted felons on the victim. One of them was Lucas Anderson, who had a long rap sheet. The two other suspects, they were younger. They were from Oakland. They belonged to a gang linked with home burglaries. And most damning is one of them was the brother 
of a sex worker who had been involved with Ravish for 12 years. So they find three different male DNA evidence on Ravish. And you've got these two younger guys from Oakland and then this homeless guy who lives in San Jose, which is about an hour away. Now, the sister of one of the guys who's a suspect, she ends up admitting that she gave her brother a map to the mansion because Ravish was rich and they were looking to score some money. Anderson isn't connected to these other two guys in any other way. Law enforcement's really having trouble finding a link. So they work tirelessly to make a connection, and <clears throat> somehow they do. They show that Anderson was locked up one of these nights with a guy who knew the other two guys. So he knew one guy who knew them, and they ended up being locked up in the same jail one night. And so that's how they link all three of them together. They figure Anderson has a lot of residential burglaries in his past. So maybe he was telling this guy and giving him tips on how it can be done in the Silicon Valley. They're just making kind of these leaps to find some kind of link. So after about a month of being in jail, a defense investigator shows the DA Anderson's medical records. It turns out that the night Ravish is suffocating on duct tape, Anderson arrived by ambulance to the local hospital in need of detox, and he had been there all night. So how does his DNA end up under Ravish's fingernails? They end up finding out that two of the paramedics who had responded to Ravish's mansion, where they checked Ravish's vitals, they had also wrestled Anderson onto a stretcher and took him to the hospital three hours earlier. That's what they had in common. So Lucas Anderson's DNA had found its way onto the fingernails of a dead man he had never even met. Is that not the craziest thing you've heard? Yeah. I've not researched this case. Just hearing it is one of the, the craziest things The case ends up dismissed against him. You know, I'm sure if you have actual provable facts surrounding how, or you can explain another way of how that DNA got to him. And yeah, you have to dismiss something like that. DNA is so fragile. And the advances in DNA, they come with great responsibility. You have to look at the entire picture and of course, all of the evidence, not just the DNA, especially when it's traced or some evidence like touch DNA. You have to look at all of it and not just take it at face value. There was DNA found on like the duct tape of Ravish, the victim. There was DNA found on another area of his body. And then obviously under the fingernails. I don't know what it is about DNA under the fingernails, but it just sounds so damning. Just imagine a struggle, right? How mm -hmm. did that person's DNA get under their fingernails? How did the paramedics who wrestled this guy down, I could see how they got it under their fingernails, but then how did they get it under the fingernails of this victim who's already deceased it's just wild that it can happen that way. My question is, do you just keep running with that? Or at a certain point, do you say, all right, the DNA is there. Let's look for some other suspects. What would you do? I've always been the investigator that follows the evidence until it either releases the suspect from any suspicion or follow it until it includes him in that suspicion. You follow the breadcrumbs until it leads you to whatever you're looking for. This article is, it's really good and it's in the Marshall Project. But in that article, I read about a 2008 series of studies by researchers that found that jurors rated DNA evidence as 95% accurate and 94% persuasive of a suspect's guilt. Had this even made it in front of a jury, he would have been guilty. If they didn't go to find his medical records, which I heard they were looking at his medical records to help for mitigation factors. There are so many different ways that a person can leave his or her DNA 
inside of a crime scene. We've seen that so many times with reasonable doubt. There are too many gaps in saying we found this. They must have done it. That's it. So that story, it just blew my mind. But we have a really interesting headline case tonight that I want to talk about and our expert will weigh in on in a bit. It's the high-profile case out of New York City, the murder of Karina Vetrano. So this case, it was in the headlines a lot. First, because it was just so tragic. Like many cases, it's where a woman just goes for a run and never returns home. But it also continues to be in the headlines because despite a conviction in this case, many members, organizations, and even politicians claim that it's a wrongful conviction. person convicted of this murder has been maintaining their innocence. We know a lot of people do that, but this one has really caught my eye. It's piqued my interest because justice needs to be served for the Vetrano family. I would hope that they absolutely have the right guy. But looking at all the evidence in this case and everything that came out, it does make you wonder, do they have the right guy? So, Chris, let's go back to August 2nd, 2016. 30-year-old Queens resident Karina Vetrano goes on an evening run in her Howard Beach neighborhood on a secluded running path that's near her home. Now, her father usually accompanied her on this run in the evenings, but he had just had a back injury, so he didn't go with her that night. When Karina doesn't show up at home after her run, her father becomes very concerned. He puts together a search party and they go looking for her. Sadly, he's the person who finds his daughter's body. Her badly beaten body was found partially clothed, she had been strangled, and her remains indicated she had been sexually abused. Her father testified in court at her trial, and he says that when he found her, he let out a sound he had never made before or since. It was a wail. That's incredibly tragic that the father's the one who found her like that. Now, at first, leads led law enforcement to believe it was more than one perpetrator. So they were actually initially looking for two white men. But DNA found at the crime scene, it was small amounts of skin cells. They were found on Karina's neck on her cell phone, and under her fingernails. They seem to belong to the same unknown Black male. This DNA didn't match anybody they had in the system. So six months later into the investigation, there's still no arrests, no suspects, until February 2017 when Chanel Lewis is arrested. Chanel is a young Black man from nearby Brooklyn. His DNA is a match to the DNA evidence found at the crime scene. Since there were no eyewitnesses to the crime, the district attorney relies on three pieces of evidence in this case. One of those pieces of evidence is the DNA. Another is that Lewis saw a doctor for hand injury the day after the murder, which doctors described as being consistent with a boxing injury. The third piece of evidence, and possibly the most damning, are videos of interviews with Lewis where he confesses to the crime. He told detectives that he had no plan to kill anyone that day. He was just frustrated and mad because his neighbors were playing loud music and he likes peace and quiet at home. So he says he left for a walk. Now, Lewis lives in neighboring Brooklyn, but he frequents Howard Beach Park. She didn't say anything to him. He hadn't said anything to her prior. He says he hit her about five times and then she landed face down in a puddle and that's how he left her. He says she drowned in this puddle of water. But here's the problem. His version of events doesn't quite match the crime scene. Karina was sexually assaulted, strangled to death, and left in the bushes. She's not found in a puddle or any water. She's found in a dry area. 
Lewis is also adamant that he never sexually assaulted her. He admits that he killed her, but that he did not sexually assault her. Now, Chris, it's strange that someone who could make such a confession to murder, which is what we consider the ultimate crime, yet he denies a sexual assault. Have you seen this before, where someone was a perpetrator of a crime, but still denies some parts of that crime? Yeah, I've seen it multiple times. A lot of people that commit murders want to save face, if you will, and make it seem as though their murder was not as bad as what the law enforcement officers are making it seem to be. So I've seen people that have confessed to being involved in a murder, but when it comes to a sexual assault, see, that takes a completely different mindset of a criminal to not only beat the defenseless woman, but also to rape that woman and probably did it after she was deceased. I once had a criminal that gave a confession to me and would not admit to how badly he beat the woman, but says that he broke into the house and beat her. But this was an elderly woman. She was 90 plus years old uh, and he beat her for hours and hours. Now he would only confess to hitting her four or five times. But looking into the crime scene, yes, he brutally beat this woman. He gave that confession because we found his DNA at the crime scene and he felt like he was trapped. So he had to make a confession, but for a jury to humanize him, he wouldn't confess to mm. everything that happened to this woman. That makes sense. Somebody who killed someone in a fit of rage, oh, they're just crazy, right? Somebody who sexually assaults and murders, well, that's a sicko. There's shame associated with that crime, which is another issue because you realize the person, if it's true and they're confessing to this crime that they actually did commit, then they understand the level of shame that's associated with it. They understand how wrong that was. And that's why perhaps they leave it out. But I thought that, that was interesting that he is very adamant. No, I did not sexually assault her. And the assault, really, it's unclear. I think the conclusion that they come to is that she was penetrated digitally. So with fingers, mm -hmm. perhaps, but not any other way. So here's what else we know. Lewis is 22 years old. He graduated from a high school for individuals with learning disabilities. And before the recordings of his confession started, he had been held by detectives for almost 12 hours. It was his first night away from home. So what are your thoughts on that, hearing that, Chris? So does this mean that this was a false confession? Not necessarily. It has some elements that I wouldn't be comfortable with, but it doesn't mean that it was a false confession because I've seen investigations and interrogations that last a number of hours. Whenever I read that he was held for how many hours, like 12, 12 hours. hours. I've seen some investigations that have taken that long. You know, you're still gathering evidence and this person is talking to you. So there are things that need to be followed up on. I'm sure he didn't come in there and confess to this very heinous act. So there are things that need to be re-verified and checked into. As a defense attorney, I would prefer, obviously, that throughout the duration that the person is in custody, one, that if they demand to speak with somebody else, I, it, it's said that he was demanding to have his parents present. He is obviously an adult, but it sounds like he does have some learning disabilities. But if you are going to have somebody in custody that long, the ideal situation is that they're recorded at all times to make sure what the circumstances look like, how the person is being treated, whether they're being fed, what's being told to them, what promises are being made. I watched his confession tapes and I didn't read anywhere that they just turned the cameras on. I was under the impression that they recorded the entire time. And some of that time he was not even in the interview room, but they left the recording 
because they may have taken him out to the bathroom or they may have fed him and then put him back in the room, but they never cut the tapes off. We know that the entire time he's in police custody, he's not in that room with the mm -hmm. video on the entire time. So this is where issues come up as to what's happening in those times that the video is not on, that he's not in that room. What's uncomfortable it, it, for me is when after 12 hours, suddenly you put the recorder on and now you've got a video of a confession. What was happening all those hours before? The confession part, it's extremely important, obviously, and I want to talk more about it. But we actually have a false confessions expert coming up in a few episodes. So I kind of want to table this, revisit this part of the case and ask them about it, because I think that would be really interesting. But mm. let's get back to this DNA, because even without a confession, that does seem pretty damning still, right? Yeah, it, it does. His DNA is found under the fingernail. The fact that he seeks medical attention a day after this murder takes place, that is very damning. And if I was working this case, he would always remain a suspect until the evidence cleared him. He mm -hmm. doesn't have any association with her prior to her murder, so it does look really bad. Now, how Lewis even ended up on investigators' radar, this part is really interesting to me. Problematic, one would even say. Because although they had DNA from the crime scene, remember, it didn't match to anybody else. So they were going on for six months trying to find a possible suspect. Now, let's go back to Memorial Day of 2016. It's two months before Karina's murder. NYPD 20-year veteran Lieutenant Russo spends at least an hour driving around following a suspicious individual in the neighborhood surrounding his Howard Beach home. Russo was off duty at the time and had his two daughters in the backseat of his car as he tracked an individual who ended up being identified as Chanel Lewis. He testified in court that he found Lewis to be suspicious because he was walking around in a hoodie, even though the weather was in the 80s on that afternoon. So on that day, two months before Karina's murder, Russo calls 911 to report the suspicious individual who was walking around the neighborhood. And this is when Lewis is stopped and frisked by police. He's never arrested that day. He tells officers he was in the neighborhood to look for a place to eat. When did they take his DNA? So they track him down. after This is six months after the murder. They come into contact with Chanel Lewis. They obviously go and look for him and they request his DNA. And he does give his DNA. They take a swab of his cheek and it comes back a match to the mm -hmm. DNA that they found on Karina Vetrano. Can we first talk about this DNA, though? Because from what I've read, it says it's small amounts of skin tissue and it's mixed. Now, obviously, we have somebody more qualified with us tonight who's going to be able to explain it better. But what's your thought about the DNA as far as the location and the amount of it, considering what we know about how she died? There's a violent struggle between the victim and the suspect in this murder. and one would expect to see more. In some cases, you would have more, but it depends. Maybe she kept her nails short, but when she scratched the person that was committing this murder, there was only a small amount that could be trapped underneath her fingernails. So I don't think you can make the determination on how much DNA evidence was left versus that it was DNA evidence that was there and it belongs to this man. I think that's the bigger answer to a question. See, I disagree. I think that and this is where our expert <laughs> could weigh in in a few minutes. But I just think that if there's a violent struggle and an alleged sexual assault, some kind of sexual penetration, whether it's with your fingers or something else, if you're leaving some DNA behind, doesn't that mean you're not wearing gloves? You're not being safe about making sure that you're not leaving any skin cells or 
fingerprints or anything. So if you're not being safe about that, I just would think there'd be so much more unless law enforcement just didn't do a great job collecting all the DNA. That would be my other issue. Maybe there was more DNA in other places. They just didn't find it. Look, of course, it's hindsight 2020. You, you can always say that I think they should have found more. I think they should have found more. No, I think the bigger issue is if it existed, did they find it, who it came back? Those are the bigger questions that I would want to see answers to. And then I know we've not talked about his confession, but I listened to his confession. And to me, a lot of his answers, maybe not all of them, but a lot of his answers correlate with some of the evidence that was found mm -hmm. on the crime scene. They did say that. So I so, feel like what you're getting at is you feel it's a rightful conviction and that's okay. That's your opinion. I, I actually don't have an opinion yet. I'm just, there's a lot of things that don't smell right. And, and of course they shouldn't smell right to you because you're, that's your profession. That's your area of expertise. Now you shouldn't take things at face value, but me being on the other side and investigating the cases such as this. Yeah. Does everything sit well with me? Are there still questions that exist? Of course. But I think the way that this murder was committed, this was committed by a sick individual. And an individual like this will not stop. For me, I'm not saying that the man is guilty because I've only looked at this case for just a little while right. and found what I could find over the internet. But knowing my area of expertise, knowing how many cases I've worked such as this, where you don't have a suspect, and it really takes a lot of grit, a lot of drive, and a lot of push to even find a person that's responsible for a murder such as this. I think these officers did justice for the victim and her family. So Lewis ends up obviously on trial. Interestingly, his first trial ends in a hung jury. Seven members wanted to convict him, including all four white members of the panel, a Hispanic woman, an Asian man, and a black man. And the five people who had doubts about his guilt were of Black, Hispanic, and Indian descent. I always find mm -hmm. that interesting, just the different demographics of who voted guilty, not guilty. Right. So it ends up in a hung jury. And surprisingly, it goes back to the judge. And normally, when you go back to the judge and you say, oh, we're not reaching a decision, we got too many people on not guilty, the judge will normally say, go back, try mm -hmm. again, talk some more, go over the evidence, and see if you can reach a unanimous verdict. But instead, this judge just declares it a mistrial, which that was really interesting to me. You don't see that often. Now, one of the issues that the jury had or those who wanted to vote not guilty, one of the jurors questioned why DNA evidence had been handled by several officers before being turned over to a lab and why Lewis's DNA was found on her neck, but not on this necklace she was wearing. They also had a problem with why an untold number of people entered the crime scene, potentially contaminating the site without anyone making a log of who was coming and going. One glaring example of the lack of information that they kept on this case was an unknown person covered Vetrano's body with a yellow tarp of unknown origin. And the tarp was never swabbed for DNA. Mm. That's a problem I have because I get that it's far-fetched, but that's what happens in these cases. I mean, look at Anderson's case, the one from San Jose. It can be so far-fetched, but this is why logging everything is so important because you don't Absolutely. want these mistakes. This is why it's so important. Who put that tarp over her body? Where did the tarp come from? You need to know all of these things because you're contaminating the crime scene. Doesn't it just make you cringe? See, that's problematic because, and I hope, you know, our law enforcement community that are listening to this podcast takes note 
because I know that there are a lot of officers that don't think how relevant is, is a tarp that somebody came and covered up this woman's body and they were probably just trying to protect her from being seen by the public or protect the public from seeing the murder that just occurred. But it's very important because it now becomes evidence and we in law enforcement have to be able to trace back every piece of evidence or as much evidence as you can in every case that we work. So it's very important to keep a log of the people that come into the crime scene because every time a person comes into a crime scene, they bring something in and they always take something out. It's very important that you know exactly where that tarp came from because that tarp has now become evidence within itself. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of mistakes that were made, but let's think about the odds. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, let's go back to the odds here. Lewis Lauder's in that area. He has the hand injury. His DNA is found on the victim, even though it's small amounts, it's still DNA and it's found on the victim. That suspect. Lewis ends up getting a second trial. And he is convicted in 2019 for killing Karina Vetrano, and he's sentenced to life in prison. And of course, he still maintains his innocence. So lots of questions in this case. If you dot your I's and you cross your T's and you do everything as it's supposed to be done under the law, you may not have these issues, right? Due process, stop and frisk, DNA samples, racial profiling, perhaps, all of these things. Anyone is going to raise in defense of someone who is a suspect, because if it isn't done with the proper protocol and the right way, you have issues. So I feel for the Vetrano family, because now, even though in their eyes, they have justice and somebody's been convicted of the crime, they still have to hear all of these different organizations, politicians, different people getting involved saying Mr. Lewis is possibly innocent. That's got to be hurtful. It's so tragic the way in which she was killed. I don't even want to go there because it, it makes me emotional. I'm so tired of men, you know, of violent men taking women's lives like they own them, like they're nothing. I'm just so tired of it. We see it all the time on Reasonable Doubt. I'm just getting really angry. Suddenly. That you mentioned that, that really struck me. And that's the fact that the father found his daughter. Oh, just you know, awful. How do you, you know, get that image out of your head? There is absolutely no way that you can ever forget that image. His daughter's been missing for some time now, and he knows exactly where she was or where she should have gone. He goes to that area and finds his daughter has been brutally murdered. And that's the last memory you have of your child. It just rips my heart to pieces just to even think about that. Absolutely. It's just unfathomable, right? But at the same time, I also feel for the Lewis family. And here's why. Because if there weren't these mistakes and if there weren't these questionable tactics, perhaps they would be able to just say, okay, we'll let it rest. I mean, obviously, they're going to fight for their loved one. We know all about that. Our show right. is all about that. Um, but there are some issues that are present here. And um, there's a lot of questions, especially about the DNA. So no time is better than now to bring in our amazing DNA expert. Athiyan is an expert in forensic serology, which is the identification of bodily fluids. He's an expert in DNA analysis, and he currently works as a forensic biology specialist at the Garden Forensic Sciences. His work has been featured on the Netflix documentaries Exhibit A and Investigation Discovery is Reasonable Without, which is where we know him from. He's always been a, one of our favorites, and I want to welcome you to the podcast. We're excited to have you. Arthur. 
Good evening, Christina. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so bad, it's so good. I love it. Arthur. You really oh, need so t-shirts. I love the idea of having Christina on my shirt and everybody asking me, what is Christina? Listen to the podcast. Man, it's good to see you again. We got to talk about what you're drinking tonight, Arthur. Oh, yeah. What are you drinking? All right. Tonight's intoxicating beverage is a gin and tonic. Went with something fairly simple. That sounds right. amazing. What kind of, of gin are you using for this drink that you made? I am enjoying uh, a bottle of gin foundry. It's uh, from the UK and it is really tasty. It's got a lot of floral and herbal notes. It goes really well with tonic, and I'm just having it straight. Let's see that bottle again. I know the fans can't see it, but I'm the, the really, bottle is I'm filling the bottle. Something mm -hmm. that you may want to have in your liquor cabinet. Very nice, sir. Very nice choice. I'm going to have to go get that one. All right. Yeah. Tell us, how did you end up in the field, and what interested you in DNA? Basically, I didn't want to work 363 days a year. I grew up in a restaurant, okay. and having grown up in this atmosphere, I just didn't want to work that hard for the rest of my life. By the time I got to high school, I learned that I had a real skill for biology, mm -hmm. a real talent for it, and so I was a pre-med major yeah. in college. But uh, the day of graduation, I'm standing on that stage. I'm handed my diploma and I look at it and I said, you know what? I've spent so much time getting this. I don't know if I want to spend any more time getting another one. So I decided yeah. to see what else I could do. In the meantime, forensic science came up and got the job. And I really haven't looked back. We've had the opportunity to have you on Reasonable Doubt a couple of times. You've been on Forensic Files. You've been on a Netflix documentary. You love what you do. And you're so great at explaining it. Do you testify mainly for defense or prosecution? Or is it both? So let me explain that. When I'm working for the prosecution, when I'm working with police agencies, because of my experience as a defense expert, I know where the holes are. And mm. so I perform my analyses to shut those holes up. So there is no other way out other than the one conclusion that we have. And this is the way that I think it really needs to be done. So when it comes time to testify, don't be surprised if I don't testify at all because the defendant takes a plea. Burn, Arthur. Hey, in <laughs> fact, that happens just uh, just last I month. I love the cockiness. I do. <laughs> is it really cockiness or is it confidence? Yeah, confidence. Confidence you know. is yeah. confidence. I make so. sure that it's solid. It's solid right. evidence. When I'm working for the defense, a couple of things happen. Either I'm just simply reviewing work that was performed by another laboratory, and I have spotted holes. I've spotted gaps in the analysis, and I bring those issues up. So when I'm working for the defense, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And when I'm working for the prosecution, I don't testify as much as you might think, simply because the evidence is so overwhelming. When it comes down to DNA, and Arthur, I don't know if you heard that statistic, how Studies have shown jurors believe 95% of the time DNA is just accurate. What are your thoughts on that? I think that we really need to understand DNA in context. 
Okay. And in the Vitrano case, I have some concerns, not the least of which was, okay, where is this DNA coming from? What is the source of the DNA? Is it coming from saliva? Is it coming from skin cells? Is it coming from blood mm -hmm. or is it coming from semen? This gives context to what the source of the DNA is. Because from what I've heard about this case, it's possible that, first of all, I would question whether or not this actually is his DNA, okay? Because there's been a word that has been thrown around a lot, and it is a word that I do not like to hear when it comes to forensic reports, and that is the word match. Why do you not like to hear the word match? Because when forensic DNA analysts are talking to each other, we understand the limitation of the word match. But when we talk to someone who is not a forensic DNA analyst, you don't understand those limitations. And so you tend to think of a sense of certainty of the data that the data just doesn't support. So I think Using the word match in any sort of forensic report has to be very cautious. You might know about how the FBI had hair examiners. Basically, a lot of their testimony had to be retracted because they said in court that the hairs matched when in fact that just wasn't true. It could only support up to a certain amount, but the hair does not possess enough characteristics to be able to say, yes, it's absolutely this person's hair to the exclusion of everyone else on the planet. But if a piece of the tissue of the scalp is on that hair, then you a can follicle. differentiate, right? A follicle. Yes. At that point, you can start looking at doing DNA. Based on what you do know about the kind of DNA and what was gathered and that it was said to be small amounts of skin tissue, what are your thoughts on that? We also have to take a look at who performed the work and what technique that they were using. Given that this was New York City, that was probably the work of the OCME's office, and they were employing a methodology that they no longer use. In fact, no one else in the world used that same method. And that is that they would take one really small sample and they would divide that sample into three different analyses. So you're now taking one bad sample and turning it into three crappy samples. And their practice was to take the data from those analyses and any result that came up more than once. In other words, if it came up two times or three times, they would consider that valid because it met one of the hallmarks of science and that is reproducibility. But the problem is when you're taking three crappy samples, you start introducing what we call stochastic effects, which are simply chaotic results. And now you could be detecting DNA from the yellow tarp, from the analyst themselves, from even the person who packaged the gloves that the analyst is wearing. These are all possibilities now. And so just because it's reproducible doesn't necessarily mean that it's better. So I would want to see the data myself to understand just how much data there was and what sort of results. 
And that's one of the reasons why context is so important. Can you explain to us the difference between trace, transfer, and touch? Is it all the same? What does it mean? Let's see. Trace DNA and touch DNA are probably going to be the same. Basically, touch DNA is DNA that you leave behind when you touch a surface. And it doesn't have to be a surface that you touch with your hand. It can be a surface that you touch with your arm. Let's say you lean on a counter at a restaurant. If you're not wearing long sleeves, your bare arm comes in contact with that counter surface and the skin cells from your arm are the, going to have the same DNA as the skin cells from your hand. So that's going to be the same sort of touch DNA. There is a trace quantity of it, and we need to employ not necessarily special methodologies, but we just need to be very careful that we're not contaminating this sample because there's just so little DNA in it that one stray flake of skin from somewhere else could get into that tube and produce a DNA result. Transfer DNA is simply DNA that migrates from one location to another. Let's think about you're at a restaurant, okay? You have fries and you decide to put salt on your fries. So you grab the salt shaker, you shake a little bit of salt on your fries, and then you put it back down. But here's the question. Have you ever been in a restaurant and licked your fingers? Sure you have. Chris loves wings, so yes. I do love wings. And <laughs> yeah, I have licked my fingers. You have saliva on your fingers now. When you touch that salt shaker or that bottle of ketchup or anything else, you're transferring your saliva and your DNA to that bottle. Here's the question. Do you think the person who sat at that table before you might have done the same thing, in which case you've picked up their saliva and their DNA on your fingers. How yeah. long does it have to be there for? It'll basically be there until there's some reason that it's removed. If wow. someone wipes it down, if someone washes it, does something like that. Basically, I don't even touch these things anymore at a restaurant. I'll yeah. use a napkin. It's so funny because I'm so grossed out by this, but then that, yet I live places like New York, San Francisco, where I take public transportation. But then I think about all of these germs and DNA cells I'm getting on me. But now I feel really bad because I'm thinking about all the DNA I'm leaving behind. <laughs> I want to summarize then to, to make sure that I understand you. The difference between transfer trace slash touch DNA is that transfer is what happens when trace and touch DNA move elsewhere. Correct. In that instant, for example, the very first case that I opened with and talking with Chris, Mr. Anderson, where paramedics saw him, touched him, and then moved on to a victim, that was transferred touch DNA. Yes, that is correct. Do you want to know how they think it happened? I do want to know how they think that happened. Have you ever seen in maybe in the ER, if you've been in there yourself or in an ambulance or maybe just seen a medical show, they have that little sensor that goes on the finger that right. takes the pulse. Yeah. It's believed that sensor was put on Mr. Anderson and then put on Ravish uh, mm -hmm. afterwards, thus transferring the defendant's DNA to the victim's DNA that way. 
That makes so much more sense. But how does it get under his fingernail, Arthur? Was it under the fingernail or was it on the fingernail? That's a good point. That's a very good point. I want to go back to the Vetrano case. So based on what you're hearing, it doesn't sound like you are confident in what they do have. I'm afraid that the public has a wide misconception about Mm -hmm. the reliability and the accuracy of DNA. I'm not saying that it's bad. I'm just saying that it needs context. Arthur, let me ask you this, and I think you've alluded to this, but I just want to make sure that we get this solid answer from you. How do you feel about trace DNA? Do you think it should be used as evidence in a case? I think that trace DNA can be very helpful. We just need to understand its limitations. DNA is a tool. And like any tool in the wrong hands, it can be very dangerous, yes. So let's bring this back to this particular case. How confident are you in the DNA that was found on this victim that comes back to the defendant in this case? I would want to see the data for myself because one thing that I haven't seen and that I haven't heard is what kind of DNA analysis was it? Because just saying that it's someone's DNA may not be enough. We need to understand how did it get here? Because Mm -hmm. it could be something like the Lucas Anderson case where it's just transfer. So in all fairness for Mr. Lewis's family, asking these questions is important. Obviously they have more information. They have the labs analysis. They can see all of that. But if it is a limited support, limited amount, like they said, it's a small amount then it does raise concerns with this. Correct. So the point of this is be mindful of DNA analysis, be educated on it, stay awake for it if you are a juror on one of these trials. What about from an investigative standpoint? What can be done on the investigative side that to make sure that you are bringing in the right type of evidence with enough context so that a jury will understand it? So Chris, to answer your question, Really what I encourage investigators and my colleagues to do is just to sit down and talk because you never know what's going to trip. Um, Mm. I invite them to come in. We sit at a table. I have coffee. I have donuts. I have whatever it is that you could possibly want because when you're comfortable, that's when things start flowing freely. It's just that simple. Arthur, this has been a very educational and interesting conversation for Fatima and myself. I truly thank you for joining us tonight. Arthur, you're the best. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you both for having me. I had an absolutely great time and I look forward to sharing Christima with the world. (laughs) We'll definitely have to have you on again for her DNA cases because it's so insightful. So we appreciate you. Thanks again for listening to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast with your hosts, Detective Chris Anderson and attorney Fatima Silva. Join us again next week where we pour out some cookie juice and pour over evidence.